The research is clear. The higher the expectations are for individuals with IDD, the greater their outcomes for independence. How do we build high expectations? Using an evidence-based approach, Quillo Connect shares success stories from people with IDD and their families, trusted persons, and DD professionals that give the people you support confidence to aim high. It takes more than one story, one meeting, or one article to raise expectations. The learning process happens over time as we hear more and more positive messages. Each day, fresh 60-second videos are delivered to smartphones, tablets, and desktops through the Quillo Connect app. Video messages are from you, individuals and families in your state, community members, and professionals in the field, as well as content created by Quillo Connect staff engaging authors from across the country. From Hammond, Louisiana, this is Home Care America. Your weekly dose of news and insights from the wonderful world of home care, waiver providers, and ICF IDD operators. It's brought to you by Cura OS, the all-in-one software solution that was forged from 30 years of experience in this industry. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to new listeners out there. Last week on the podcast, we introduced you all to John Dickerson, the founder and CEO of Quillo, an amazing piece of software that uses video content and storytelling to educate and inspire everyone in a home care work environment. The staff and the clients are brought together in a shared experience that makes them all feel more belonging to the process. This creates greater loyalty and less turnover among employees, and it also empowers caregivers to go deeper with the clients in person-centered planning and care. This week on the podcast, we're going to rejoin John Dickerson and James Griffith of Cura as they discuss some other benefits unlocked by smart software tools like Quillo and Cura, particularly among a new generation of Gen Z workers who are actively seeking more meaningful jobs. Here's James Griffith. What I see coming together now is this great opportunity for providers to renew their focus on the individual level to the consumer by having these person-centered care plans, which could be op- can now, thanks to technology, be operationalized at the provider level. But that translates into just so much better job descriptions, yep. the ability to succeed at the individual level as an employee, the things, the intangibles, the realization that I am making a true difference in someone's life and not just showing up to make sure they're just okay, to be able to have the tools to understand this individual on a more in-depth level that I can now grow for the next person. Like I'm actually contributing in my daily activity to the next person who comes in ability to be successful. And so we create this continuity of care. It's almost like handing off a baton in a relay race and you want to do so well. I want to run fast and I want to hand that baton off so well so that you can run fast. And this is a paradigm shift for our industry, John. It really is. We, we, we don't see this right now. We, we don't see the, the focus on our staff. We see the focus on processes at a time that 
our, our staff are tired of being punished by our inability to manage our processes. And so we force our staff to jump through all these crazy hoops so that we don't get in trouble. And that it has to change now. It just has to change. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And we're living through history. Uh, I was in uh, Dustin Wright now come across him. It's a company called Disability Cocoon. And it's all about technology and how do we use technology to help people be more independent, to rely less on these highly regulated labor-intensive services to help people be more, more independent. And as we were talking, he said something really interesting, and it's right on what you said, James. And it's he said, we are on the verge of for this generation of leaders, we are going through our new deinstitutionalization movement. Only it's not moving. It's we're not moving. Sadly, we still have people living in institutions. And I just got a call from one of our states we work with, where their legislature just passed a bill or in the budget bill, the possibility of reopening one of their state institutions, which makes no sense at all because of the staffing shortage. Now, where are they going to get staff to go work at the state hospital? It's just nuts. But what he said is, we are on this historic moment of deinstitutionalizing our community-based system. And he said, we almost need a waiver for the waiver. We have institutionalized the waiver. Now we got to break it and build this new way of looking at, for those people, a simple cell phone app can be a replacement for staff or remote supports for some people that need it, or we quit planning for the what if. We have built this whole system about the what if. We're sitting here planning Laura's life for it, which is mistake number one, instead of asking her what she wants in her life. And we say, what if Laura wakes up in the middle of the night and goes out for a walk at midnight? We got to have staff there that can't allow her to go for a walk at midnight. Has she ever gotten up and left the house at midnight? No, but she could. So we have to have staff there for her. And so we do all this what-if planning, which becomes very expensive. Instead of coming back and saying, how can Laura and her roommate get by together and watch out for each other? And if she's never done this, why would you think she would ever get up and leave at midnight and go for a walk? And this idea that how do we plan for success, not plan for the failure along the way. So it's it's really, I think you're absolutely right. And I think those agencies and organizations and state agencies that grasp that are going to thrive and grow and be chosen by families and people. This is where we want to go. Those don't, I think they're going to struggle mightily because we're on the cusp of this huge turnaround. And the difference is, and you said it, the pandemic has forced us to look in the mirror and say, is this what we want? It's, I remember our my a good friend Cliff Dozier down in the Ark of New Orleans after Katrina, and he gave this great speech where he said he loved his workshop and they, they had all these great contracts and they thought everybody was happy until Katrina destroyed their workshop. And he's handed this great big insurance check and he said, do you think we should just build another workshop? And he started questioning himself. And he's looking at this check, billions of dollars. And he said, is this is what people needed? And he said, I better go ask my people. 
And out of 188 people, I may get the numbers wrong. Cliff can correct me here. But out of 188 people in the workshop, he thought they all loved it. They did Mardi Gras beads recycling, I think was one of their contracts. He thought they loved it. It was good work, good pay. He found out that 20 people loved it and the others hated it. And so they started reinventing what they did. And so this idea, and he closed his workshop by saying, don't wait for a hurricane to get you to ask people what they want. And I think that's part of our our challenge now of how do we do things differently? And the pandemic has forced us to look at those. And you're absolutely right, James. We're in the midst of a change that we haven't even figured out yet how substantial it's going to be. And I think we need to ride that change and shape it and make it work for people better than what we have right now. I agree 100%. And that's why we're here. We're going to, we're here to help drive that change and make it better. And I think we have a lot of like-minded people out there. And I hope through your podcast and the work you're doing by reaching out to others, people aren't alone feeling this, but we don't get heard. The people that want to see this kind of change don't get heard as often sometimes as the voices of the status quo. And that's true with any kind of change, right? So we got to find this way of getting the word out. And I love your idea of your podcast and being thinking about it. And how do we reach out to all parts of our community and the folks that are out there doing good things? I've often thought I'd love to find a way to... Chamber of Commerce has these 40 under 40. The three of us here, Laura's the only one under 40. I think she's 35. Not a truth teller either. Uh, I I was a lobbyist. What can I say? Wouldn't it be exciting, James, if we could find the 40 most exciting, vibrant young leaders in our field all across the country that are doing this innovation, that are leading this at a program level or an executive director level and bring them together virtually or in person to celebrate their leadership and begin telling other people about who is doing these great things of change. And so one of my goals through Quillo is we find a way to do this because there are bright young people doing things and there are seasoned people like you doing exciting things that I would like to meet and get those people together so that we learn from one another because the people that are stuck in the way we did it the last 30 years We need to be talking to the people that see a different future along the way and bring them together and bring them together with leaders like you that welcome that kind of challenge, because that's going to be important. I would definitely welcome the opportunity to discuss that further with you and figure out how just to make that happen. Excellent. It's time. At Cura, we really are seizing this moment, establishing ourselves as a leader in all of these ideas, and would welcome the opportunity to meet with other like-minded people. In my personal experience, that we're not easy to find. No. Um, not at the provider level. Well, and they're also at the provider level. They're busy creating change. They're not busy out there promoting themselves. I'm thinking of somebody like Kelly Hartman here in Indianapolis. Laura, I think you've met her. And there's a young lady out in San Francisco and another one in Little Rock, Arkansas. I think we find these folks that are out there pushing the limits. This woman in, in Arkansas, she started as a DSP in this organization 22 years ago. She has her PhD now. 
and she's the executive director, only the second executive director this organization's had in 45 years. And here she is in rural Arkansas. They serve about a thousand people statewide. And she's one of the strongest voices for social justice that I've ever met. And that's not because a large 60% of her workforce is African-American. It's not because they have a large immigrant population in Arkansas that has gravitated toward the DSP world. It's because at her core, she believes that equity and justice is as important for the people we serve as it is for our staff. So if you're worried about your son or daughter getting pulled over by the police because they're the wrong skin color, how safe are you feeling at work when they, she's, they're worried about how they're going to survive at home? So it's this intersection of all these issues that as we look at our people, just as we look at our the person-centered thinking for our people we serve, the person-centered thinking for the people we support. Another thing she did just was really interesting. She started waking up one day and she realized one of her staff had told her, as part of one of the interviews we did, that she had a 12-year-old daughter with Down syndrome. And she said, you've never mentioned that before. And the staff member said, well, nobody ever asked me. Now, she has 800 employees. She's probably got other employees that have sons and daughters with disabilities. So she called her HR person in and said, how many employees do we have that have a son or daughter, grandson, granddaughter, or a cousin or an uncle with a disability? We don't know. We can't ask that question. It's not legal to ask that when we hire them. She said, I'm not asking when we hire them. I'm asking when they're already our employees. Shouldn't we be offering to help them just like we help any other family that needs help? And when she asked the woman, again, why never did you say that we never, you had a daughter who was 12 years old with Down syndrome? And she said, I didn't think anyone would care. Now, this is a very progressive agency. Nobody had thought to look to their own population. Now, any family, they serve over a thousand families across the state of Arkansas. They now are going out and getting to know their staff and saying, what's going on in your life? What do you do? They found a mom that, that her mother had Alzheimer's. And they said, we know a little bit about that. We're going to connect you with some community resources. It wasn't just about their staff showing up for work. It was about how you get to know them and you have that connection with them in some ways that make sense. So that's where I think you're absolutely right. James, that we're in the midst of a shift. I love how you're embracing it with your agencies as well as the software you're developing because this is a culture that we've got to change and we have this huge system that changes one organization at a time, one person at a time, and we build those tools around it and support them on that change. So, you know, you mentioned that there's, uh, that there's a the staffing shortage is being used as justification to open up an institutional based facility, yeah. and that right there is the dynamic that we are really out to change. We we know that there are providers that are tied to these thirty year old systems that have the ears of policymakers that drive these decisions. There isn't, there is not a staffing shortage. 
there is an outdated industry that must evolve that doesn't warrant the employment of a worthwhile employee. Right. And that's right. where we are as an industry. We have we we have one of the most wonderful job opportunities and op- op- available for an individual that is going to more than likely go work for some other paid job, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but nowhere near the personal sense of contribution or job satisfaction that brought you into this industry when you never thought this was what you were going to do. And I can tell you that as the owner of an agency that started it when I was 29 years old and had previously navigated battleships, um, this was not at all what I saw <laughs> myself doing ever, ever. Yeah. And it's like you know, the most rewarding, positive, great thing that you can do. When you mentioned about the employees of the month, are any of them still here? Our employees of the month have been here 22 years, 17 years, 14 it's just incredible how many employees out of hundreds have been here in excess of 10 years. Yep. So I know that I just know that we have one of the most meaningful, heartfelt, great jobs out there. You're absolutely right. And it drives me nuts sometimes when people talk about we're competing with McDonald's. No, we're you not. Know? We're not competing with McDonald's. You don't change people's lives working at McDonald's. You no. don't see like people light up and you see that difference. And everything about Generation Z that you read about, the kids coming out of school now, they want meaning in their lives. They want acknowledgement. They want to see things happen. They want to make a difference in the world. I interviewed a young woman that we wrote a blog about. I've noticed that she was a baby. Graduated from a good school in Indiana, didn't know what to do with herself, had a great education, very expensive education, her mother said, but she didn't know quite what to do. So she got a job with a very well-known company. If I said the name of it, you'd know it. She stayed there about a year, wasn't happy, got another job, they got another job, and about after four years, it bounced around to four or five places. And now she'd really settled into a software company and really liked it, and her mother was bragging around. And so I said, do you think that she would be willing to talk to me about this? Because I think this is fascinating. And she said, sure. So we had this great talk. What she said made her feel comfortable in this job is the company worked hard at making sure they knew that she knew they wanted her to stay. That they shot, they thought she had great potential and they looked for things, they used Slack to create a, within it's 100 people in their company, not a huge company, but she loves hiking and she loves dogs. So she could find other coworkers that love hiking and love dogs. She found a way to be connected, to be part of something that had nothing to do with how much she was paid or what the benefits were, but she was valued. And we wrote a blog about that because thinking of, For people that are your employees, how do you find those common connections to them? How do you tell them they're the most valued people in 
individuals' lives and what differences they make. Because that is a message you don't need to hear once, you need to hear it over and over again that you are important. One of the things we'll tell you from our interviews with DSPs that are all anonymous from companies that we do is one of the things they will say to me is whenever they get a call from their supervisor, they think it's one of two things. They're in trouble or they've got to work another shift. They never say, the boss called me up. We we work with our customers and we suggest a simple thing because they don't have time. So we ask them to say, do you have 10 minutes a week or 10 minutes a day you can give me? And we'll say, have one of your HR people give you five names of employees and give those to you on an index card. And you as the CEO, don't hand this off to a program manager. You as the CEO calls five employees a day, a couple minutes a piece. And just talk to him about how things doing. Ask him three things. How are you doing? How are we to help you do your job? And what can I do better as your CEO to, to do this? First of all, they're amazed that the CEO calls them. These are short conversations, but they find a connection with them. He liked it so much, he's now doing 10 a day. Because he realized that five a day, he wouldn't get through his whole agency in a year. And he's talking to people and finding out what's going on in their lives. That is a commitment to doing something different. So you can either stay on the the gerbil wheel running round and round, same old things, or you can take 15 minutes out of your day and invest it in talking to your people. And the idea, some people will scoff at that idea, saying, I know what my people think. And that's the first sign to me that you're in trouble. Because if you're not listening to your people or talking to them, you really don't know what they're thinking. It's like one of our customers said, I knew I had a problem. Every year with our CARF survey, we have to do a staff survey. And I get 93% people say they love their work, they love working here. Then why do I have a 60% turnover rate? One of those two facts isn't truthful. And I know I count W-2s and I know who's leaving. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Home Care America. Next week on the podcast, we'll join James Griffith of Cura and Dr. Laura Bracken as they interview Julia Kenny of Caregiver Homes of Louisiana. It's an in-depth and powerful conversation about the intersection of smart software tools and person-centered planning and care. Till then, y'all have a wonderful week, and we'll see you again soon.